0: Hey, good evening, everybody. A special thank you to Isaac and Sam and the entire Heber for setting things up so beautifully tonight, as always. Special thank you to Torah Anytime for sharing this year with others who cannot be here this evening. And the top is, topic is an exciting one. The topic is Yerushalayim. We now stand three days away from Yom Yerushalayim. And I'd like to, uh, to jump in, go back in time more than 50 years and uh, try to relive a little bit of that euphoria, of that sense of jubilation, getting back Yerushalayim, reliving some of the miracles that took place in the 1967 war. But I'd like to go back further than 50 years I'd like to go back to Yerushalayim itself. By show of hands, who here has been to Eretz Yisrael before? Almost, almost every single person in the room. What was that feeling you had the first time walking off the airplane? You're in the airport, what feeling do you have? I had this myself the first time I went when I was 13 years old and I've heard this from Probably hundreds of people throughout my life. Everyone says something very similar namely, it felt like I was home. Such a weird thing. I've never been here before and officially it's a foreign land and you're growing up in America but you walk off that plane and you know you're home. Very strange feeling in the, the beautiful poetry of Rav Avraham Yitzchak HaKohen Cook, when he speaks about that, that internal sense of, of Eretz Yitzhak, and that longing for Eretz Yitzhak, he writes in his Sefer Oros, Beto chalev panima b'chadrei ta'roso in the depths of the heart, within the inner chambers of purity and sanctity, Miskaberes he has shelheves hayisraelis. There's a fire that's burning, the Jewish flame. Haderes bechazaka as his Kashrus, al mitzvah tadira shelchayim el mitzvah Hashem kulo, and it's it's pushing us, it's it's propelling us towards a life of mitzvos Hashem, to be totally engaged in the Torah. That fills our neshama. With this fire, this shall have us, Ha Yisraelis. This is kol Don't think this sensation is limited to the righteous people, but even amongst those who have no education and no exposure to Torah, believe kol and even in the heart of those who are sinners who are deciding not to keep the Torah, That fire is a flame. You might not see it, but within the neshama, you could feel it. Where is it coming from? It's flowing from this living wellspring. It's a desire to live the entire Jewish life, the full experience, below Stira, below Hadbalah, without any contradiction and without any limitation. V'zosi chukas Eretz Yisroel, And this is the desire for Eretz Yisrael. Admas HaKodesh, the Holy Land. Eretz Hashem, the Land of Hashem. It's coming from that yearning that we all have within us to be living the Torah in its totality. Not in Golis, not outside of the Land of Eretz Yisrael, but to have the full experience of Torah and Hashem. That fires within every single Jewish Nisham. Where is the origin of that fire? Where did that fire start? There's a beautiful piece in the Sefer Haredim, the Sefer Haredim by Rabbi Lazar Azkari, one of the great Kabbalists living in Spas in the 1500s. He says that the mindset we should have is Tzarech Kol Ish Yisro, es Yisro. We have to love Eretz Yisro, we have to cherish Eretz Yisro. The love of Allah, me'afse'aretz, bechukah gadola, and to come to Eretz Yisrael from all, all places on the globe with an overwhelming desire. And here's a beautiful phrase Keben el Imo. Just like that feeling of a child running into the lap of his mother. That has to be our relationship with Eretz Yisrael. We're coming home, we're coming to the source of our security, we're coming to my, my, my place of safety. Ulfikach and the Sevech Charedim says, Therefore, Ambarayim, the great Talmudic scholars, Minashkim Afroseha ve'avaneha bevoa aleha. The Gemara tells us that they would come and they would kneel down once they got to the land of Eretz Yisrael, and they would kiss the dirt and the stones. They would kiss the dirt and the stones. Rav Kook, I remember seeing, he was bothered by the question, Why are you kissing the dirt? Why are you kissing the rock? How about a flower? How about the grass? So he suggested that land that, that, that has soil, that's fertile, that could grow, maybe the reason you love that is because you could do more mitzvahs, all of those special mitzvahs that are unique to Eretz Yisrael, Truma and Meiser, So these Amarayim were going out of their way to kiss the dirt and the stones. You can't do any mitzvahs with these things. Nonetheless, they were expressing just the intrinsic soil itself because this is Admas Kodesh. I feel the sanctity. I, I feel like I'm coming home. They were expressing their love. Where did this start? So the Sefer Charedim says with Avram Avinu that when he was first told to follow Hashem, to the land that he would show him. He didn't have much excitement. He was doing it because Hashem said so. But once Avram got off the plane, and he was there for the first time, and he saw through his prophecy the grandeur and the splendor of this land, Az nichsov Then he had this overwhelming desire for Eretz Yisrael. nilmad Lidoros, and nachnu yotzei halatzav. And that's where we get it from. All generations, it's within the spiritual DNA, starting from Avraham Avinu 3,800 years ago. The first time he was there, he fell in love with the land, and now in every generation subsequent of Avraham we have that same desire of filu Yisrael, even the sinners amongst us, we have that relationship with Eretz Israel. And there's something special about Yerushalayim. The Mishnah tells us in Kisuba it's a famous Mishnah, that if you have a debate between husband and wife, right now they're living in Kansas, and the wife says to her husband, Shlaimi, I want to move to Eretz Yisrael." Shprinzi, you're crazy, we can't do it, we're not gonna be able to make a living, we're not gonna have our friends over there. Shlaimi, I've wanted to do this ever since I was a little girl, I told you about this when we were dating, I need to go to Eretz Yisro. No, we cannot do it, it's not realistic. So hopefully they'll have a good healthy communication. Push comes to shove though, Who could force the other person, right? She could tell her husband, this is what we're doing, like it or not. That's what the Mishnah says. Then it has one step further. Let's say we're already living in Sfas, right? The mystical, magical city of Sfas. And then one spouse says, I want to move to Jerusalem." We can't move to Jerusalem. Why not? It's not as nice. You know, you don't have the same feeling living in Svas. It's just this, this magical energy. I want to move to Yerushalayim. Again, the Mishnah says, Hakol Malin Yerushalayim. You can force your partner to move to Yerushalayim. Why? Eretz Yisrael, I get it. Right? There is a mitzvah of living in Eretz Yisrael. Is there an added mitzvah of living in Yerushalayim? It's the Avnei Nezer. He says, there's more Kedusha, there's more sanctity at Yerushalayim. And therefore, if she wants to go and live a, a higher level of existence, you can't hold her back. Yerushalayim has more Kedusha. What is so special about Yerushalayim? If you look throughout history, the, uh, the entire history of Yerushalayim has been so incredibly turbulent just looking at Tanakh, we have a verse in Eicha that we read on Tisha B'av, speaking about the calamity of the destruction of the Temple. And it says that, This was the city, now that we're seeing it totally devastated, this was the city that they used to say, the klilas Yofi Mesos Kola It's a perfect beauty. It's the joy of all of the earth. Look at it. It's in ruins. But it's an interesting expression. It's a description of Yerushalayim. Kalilas Yofi, perfect beauty, Mesos Kola a source of joy for the entire world. That's one description we find of Yerushalayim. In Tehillim, in Kuf Base, Beis, where David Hamelech is speaking about the joy of Yerushalayim and his anticipation for the building of the Beis Amigdash, he writes Yerushalayim habanuya keir shechubra lo yachdav. that's built is like a city that's connected together. Shechubra, it's mechubar, it's connected. Now, there are many different dimensions as to what this means. There's a Gemara and tainis, and there are mystical ideas here. But two descriptions we find in Tanakh of what exactly Yerushalayim is. The first is perfect beauty and a source of joy. And the second is, it's Shechubra lo-yachtav. It combines together. We do have a Midrashic source. Actually, telling us where the name Yerushalayim comes from. Very fascinating Chazal. It says that Avram, after the Akedah, after taking Yitzchak to the Harabayas to the Temple Mount, he says, the Yikra Avram Shem HaMokumahu Hashem Yireh. He called that place Hashem Yireh, which really means Hashem will see. However, Shem, Korah Oso, Sholem. But Shem, the holy son of Noah, who is also known as Malki Tzedek, it describes him in, as in, in the Torah. And this is the first reference we have to Yerushalayim. He was Melech Sholem, the king of a place called Sholem. So we have a contradiction. Avram is calling this area, Yira, Hashem, Yira, Hashem, we'll see. And Shem is calling the exact same spot, Shalem, which means wholeness. So, Amra Kadosh Baruch Hashem says, What do I do now? oso oso Avram, If I call this place Yira, like Avram refers to it, so then shame is going to feel bad. Vim ani oso shalem, but if I call this place shalem So then Avram's going to feel bad. So what should I do? I have a good idea. (laughs) I'm going to combine the two words together. I'm going to call this very special place where Avram takes Yitzchak for the Akedah, where Yaakov is lying there and he has his prophetic vision of the ladder and so many other massive historical events throughout history. Says Hashem, I'm calling this Yerushalayim, Yira Hashem will see, together with Shalem with wholeness. That's the source of the name Yerushalayim. So what exactly is going on? What's the deeper meaning, Yira and Shalem so There's a beautiful piece in the Meshachachma, where he says, Malkit Tzedek lived right after the Mabul, after the destruction of the world. He called Yerushalayim Shalem because he understood that the need for that, that destruction and really a new beginning was based on the fact that there was Hashchosa, there was, there was a lack of humanity. People were not living up to their potential and the world was not going in the right direction. And the point of destroying the world and starting fresh is that now we should all be B'Shalemos, we should be wholesome. We should be going in the right way. Explains the Meshachachma. (inaudible) Because we know all of humanity is really one. We're one species. (inaudible) In a sense, mystically speaking, we're all different limbs of a greater force. (inaudible) We all need each other. I could influence you, you could influence me. So that's why Malkit Sadik, why Shem called this place Shalem, because in his perception, we need to focus on Sholeimus, on harmony and wholesomeness. We got to get things back on track. Avram had a different mission. Avram was the one who discovered Hashem in a very real way. He was the one who would have these conversations and debates with all of the pagans Convincing them, Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Hashem, So Hashem, or Avram called this place Hashem Yireh, Hashem, Will See, explains the Meshechachma. Hashem's vision is an expression of Hashkacha Pratis, of Hashem's relationship with humanity. And Yerushalayim is a place we could feel that more than any other place in the world. That's why he wanted to give it the name Hashem Yireh therefore comes along Hashem, he listens to shame, he listens to Avram, and he says, this is exactly what Yerushalayim is. This is what Yerushalayim should be. It's a combination. L'chem Yerushalayim Kliasiofi, meaning to say, it's, it's this perfect, beautiful blend. It's a source of joy for the entire world. When you have shleimus, you have harmony, you have humanity coming together in brotherhood. It could be a place of achtus of unity. And at the same time, it's not just humanism, but it's a recognition and it's a feeling and it's a tangible relationship with Hashem. It's Hashem Yira. Those two things together, that's exactly what Yerushalayim is. So the potential for harmony and the potential for connection with Hashem, its its highest form is found in Yerushalayim, Ir HaKodesh. So to say it briefly, Yerushalayim equals connection. Connection with each other and connection with the source of all life. The Malbim, when he elaborates on this paragraph in Tehillim, and he speaks about this idea of Yerushalayim being, being the city Shechubra la-yachtav, where there's a connection between ourselves and between us and Hashem. That's not an automatic connection. That requires our effort. That requires acceptance of each other. That requires some level of tolerance and not being overly judgmental. He writes in the bottom here of his commentary in source number 9, if we really want to bring it to its potential of a city that's able to unite, then it's only possible if there's no peirud, if there's no distinction, there's no blockage between me and you. At the very end of this, David Malek says two different words, shalom, Shalom, and Shalva. Shalom is peace, and Shalva usually means serenity or tranquility. The Malbim says these are two very different things. Shalom is external. Shalva is internal. What David HaMelech is davening for is that there should be Shalva, there should be an internal, there should be an intrinsic tranquility and acceptance of each other to have an inner Achdos and only then can we have Shalom. Then we're going to be safe from all of the outside forces. But if we don't have the Shalva, we don't have that sincerity and that serenity and that tranquility with each other and we're overly judgmental, then we're not utilizing Yerushalayim for what it is and what it could be. So Yerushalayim is Hashem Yireh and it's also Shlemus. In 1991, when the Scud missiles were flying into Eretz Yisrael, this is before they had the Iron Dome, they had the Patriot rockets, which did not do that great of a job. Nisim upon Nisim took place. There were open miracles almost every day. Probably the greatest expression of Ava, of love, and togetherness was at the Koso. You you see pictures, you speak to people who were there in Yerushalayim. The amount of people, thousands and thousands of people coming to the Koso, and davening together from all walks of life. And I don't care who you are, I'm not looking down at you, you're not looking down at me. It was just an achdus. That's an ear, that's a city that's mechuber, that's connected. Unfortunately, we we find this achdus most often when there's some level of tsara, when there's a tragedy, or when there's a national scare. At that point in time, everything seems to melt away. But that's the goal of Yerushalayim. Not to need the, 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 the fear to come together, but it's, it's, it's the shleimus and that sense of Yira, Hashem is looking and, and He's part of my life. Those two things coming together. In Eichat, it speaks about Yerushalayim during the times of the destruction of the first of Migdash. And it says, very, very cryptic Pesach, but a haunting Li yomru. These are small children lying, starving to death, and they say to their mothers, "Aye Dogon, where's the bread? Veyayin, where's the wine? Bihis atfam kechalal, as they lay there, languishing. Birchovo sa'ir, in the city streets as their lives run out in the laps of their mothers. This takes place where? Children starving to death? In the streets of the city of Yerushalayim. Let me look at Zechariah. And Zechariah has his famous optimistic prophecy. So says Hashem. You will see that old men and women will be sitting in the streets of Yerushalayim. And the very next Possek, quoting the exact same phrase from Eicha, and in the city streets, you're not going to see children dying of starvation, but rather, you're going to see little boys and little girls playing and running, and laughing. That was the vision of Zechariah. That's what Yerushalayim could be. So what a crazy, turbulent history we've had. The same streets that we've seen the bloodshed of millions of Jews, and taken captive, and the city in ruins. In those same streets, Zechariah is telling us, one day you're gonna see old men and women sitting there with their canes, and you're gonna see little boys and girls playing ball, smiling and laughing. The, the, the most astounding thing, when we read this these Psukim in Zechariah, this is a vision that was very, very difficult to believe in for 1900 years. To the point where there were many times in history where some of the Jewish people somewhat gave up on that hope. They didn't believe they would ever return to Yerushalayim, and therefore, what's the point of, of yearning for it? What's the point of, of davening for it? Famous piece in the Seder HaDoros, Rabbi Yechiel Halperin, where he writes that after the 70 years of exile, after the first base of Migdosh, so then we know a small percentage of the Jewish people left Babylon, they went back to Eretz Yisroel. And they sent word to the communities in Europe, to the Jews who were staying in worms and mines, and they said, please come and join us here in Eretz Yisroel, and this way you could go three times a year to Yerushalayim, come with us, return to Tzio. But these Jewish communities didn't care, they didn't pay attention and they wrote back the letter, the famous letter that they said to the people in Jerusalem, Shavu tam Yerushalayim, you stay in Jerusalem Hagadola in, in the big Jerusalem, v'anachnu po Jerusalem Ketana, but we're going to stay here in the small Jerusalem. Why do they feel so confident? So the Seder Hadoros explains, oso ha-pam, at that particular time in history, They were viewed as very wealthy and influential. They were close with the government. got a lot of money and a lot of power. We don't need Yerushalayim anymore. So there are points in history where we just felt we were fine where we are. You guys could be there in the big Yerushalayim. We're going to stay here in the small Yerushalayim. There are more extreme examples of this. This is something I've quoted before because I find it so ironic. In 1885, the uh, Pittsburgh Platform, Pittsburgh Platform was a gathering of the reform movement in America and the goal was to to make a a list of the the agenda items or their new definition of Judaism, how to reform Judaism to make it more, more doable and more realistic for those of us living in America. So, one of the items they write today, we accept as binding only its moral laws, meaning the Torah's moral laws, and maintain only such ceremonies as elevate and sanctify our lives, but reject all such as are not adapted to the views and habits of modern civilization. Right, so basically, if the outside world looks at this particular mitzvah as strange, then that's not binding anything that that resonates with us, that that morally seems correct, we're going to do those mitzvot. They go on to say that we consider ourselves no longer a nation, but a religious community, and therefore expect neither a return to Palestine nor the restoration of any of the laws concerning a Jewish state. We don't expect a return to Palestine This was their official doctrine in 1885. And this is really just following suit. The the reform movement in Germany in the 1800s, and I've also quoted this before, but it's just so astonishing, it's so ironic. They took out of the Siddur davening for Yerushalayim. They took that out of the Siddur. And the basic rationale was, it's an insult to the motherland. Here we have Germany, they've embraced us. They're welcoming us. You know, we have some political rights. How can we say, how could we sit here and pray to go back to Palestine? It's a chutzpah. So they took it out of the Siddur. But this is all an expression. It's all revealing to us that it was so hard to believe. It was so hard to wrap your head around. Those psukim in Zachariah. It's a dream. It's a halom but it's not a reality. And don't think that was limited to the part of the Jewish community that, that was not as religious, that was not as from. Rav Yehuda HaLevi, who was one of the greatest lovers of Zion, he writes in the Sefer Kuzari, we all have this struggle. He's speaking to the king of the Kuzars, and he tells them in source number 14, it's true, I'll tell you, I'll tell you we we speak about <laughs> bowing down to the holy mountain, and we say <laughs> We daven that you Hashem should return your shchina to Tzion to Yerushalayim. But the truth is, we're saying the words ella hazarzir. It's almost like a parrot, right? The parrot is saying words. It could, it could copy what the human says. But we're not really granting a credence. Even those of us who daven three times a day, Rabbi Judah HaLevi is writing this in the 11th century. It's so hard to believe. It just seems so beyond reality. However, we know that optimism is always a Jewish trait. The same man, Rabbi Judah HaLevi, in his famous Kina, he has a phrase that really defines every Jew. He says, Tikva." best translation is, prisoners of hope. The Jew lives as a prisoner of hope. I can't help myself but to be optimistic. I can't help myself to believe that there's going to be a time where it's not gonna be this dark. There's going to be a time where, where there's going to be more clarity in the world. A Sire tikva. We're all prisoners of hope. <clears throat> in May 15, 1967, started one of the probably one of the most scary periods. Three weeks had lasted in recent history. After years of stockpiling massive amounts of sophisticated weapons from the Soviet Union and elsewhere, May 15th, during the celebration of Yom Atzmud and Eretz Yisrael, the Egyptian president, Nasser, in direct conflict with international law, he orders the UN peacekeeping forces to leave the Sinai. And surprisingly, it sounds like it was even surprising to him, they said, Okay, right? You're here to be a peacekeeping force, which would probably mean when you have a nation who wants to start a war, that's when you actually have to step in and do something. But for some strange reason, they acquiesced. At that point, the uh, Egyptians start moving tens of thousands of soldiers and hundreds of tanks towards the southern border of Israel. May 23rd, Egypt now has blockaded the Straits of Tehran by the south of Israel. And that was a breach of international law, an open declaration of war. Now at first, people living in Israel and Jews throughout the world had some level of comfort because President Lyndon Johnson pledged that if that would ever happen, the U.S. would be there and we would make sure to open it up right away. No one has any right to close off the Straits of Tehran. What did Lyndon Johnson do? Absolutely nothing. right, let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. Now Egypt and Jordan were never friends. Right? They were not good buddies. The truth is Nasser, the president of Egypt, tried assassinating King Hussein many times. He failed. But we know that when we share the same enemy, that can make us good friends. And we have this over and over again in Tanakh, Moab and Midian coming together. I'm going to hire you to curse the Jews, even though we hate each other, but we hate the Jewish people more, and therefore, let's join forces. So Egypt and Jordan, Syria, Iraq and Lebanon, they get together. At this point in 1967, there are about 2.5 million Jews living in Israel. And as this is happening, the feeling is basically, this could be another Holocaust. This could be genocide on a massive scale. May 28th, Nasser says as follows. Here's a direct quote. We intend to open a general assault against Israel. This will be total war. Our basic aim is the destruction of Israel. You Look at the basic numbers. How many soldiers? We had about 289,000 soldiers. Versus the combined Arab nations together, 582,000. So they had more than twice as many soldiers as we did. They had more than three times the amount of tanks. Warships, we had 19. The combined Arab forces had 205. Naturally speaking, we have no chance. So Israel does. The only thing it can do, it turns to the U.N., Can you do something here, guys? Can you step in? Right? Want to be friendly? They uh, turned to President Lyndon Johnson. And really, Johnson and Prime Minister Wilson of of England, they all have the same mantra, which is they urge restraint. This is going on now for decades and decades. We're urging restraint. Don't do anything yet. So Israel finally understood that they were standing alone, and sadly, that's a familiar position to be in. Bilam in his prophecy he said han Yishko, the jewish people they're always alone lo yishashav. they're not considered like the other nations they're different they're isolated seeing that the western world had no intention of uh, intervening all of the other arab countries even if they didn't officially join the alliance but they were celebrating there were mobs in the street of, of Cairo and Damascus and East Jerusalem chanting death to Israel, wanting, wanting to see the, the conclusion of the Holocaust. The estimation in Israel was that if this war would actually take place, likely we would lose between 20 and 100,000 people. And one of the great fears besides the war itself was the fact that we didn't have enough space to bury the dead. The cemeteries weren't big enough for that kind of mass casualty. So what they did is they closed off parks, and they started digging graves. This is what was on the mind of all of Klaal Yisrael for those three weeks. Israel, though, decided not to wait passively for its demise. The morning of June 5th, famous minister of defense, Moshe Dayan, He gets on the radio, and I quote to you exactly what he said. Now mind you, 1967 in Israel, everyone had radios, but there was no TV yet. So you just had people listening on the radio trying to to stay current. Moshe Dayan says, Chayel Leitzahal, soldiers of the armed forces, we are engaged in air battles with the enemy, and our tanks and ground forces are moving to repel the attack. We will defend our lands against all of our enemies, although we are a small people, outnumbered and surrounded. We will fight to live and we will fight and be victorious. Soldiers of Israel, in you today lies our hope and our trust. This was the announcement the morning, Monday, June 5th. June 5th was the 28th of E.R. What the country didn't know until a little bit later is that 7.15 that morning... Israel did something that was extremely risky. Some might call it foolish. But this was the, the, the pivotal point. This is the game changer. They sent down every single airplane they have. I think they left maybe 10 or 12 back in Eretz They sent down every single airplane. And they were not talking sophisticated. We're talking old French planes that were way outdated. They sent them down to Egypt. The goal of that is that the Egyptian planes together with some of the other Jordanian and Iraqi planes were all on Egyptian runways. And if we could somehow have a preemptive strike, which is not really preemptive when they declare war and they make it very clear that our goal is to destroy you. But if we could get their planes before they take off, that might be our only hope. Now they had radar, they had ways of detecting we have hundreds of planes going down to Egypt, they're going to find that out. And the Jordanians knew about this, even though we were flying less than 60 feet above the ground to try to avoid radar. But the Jordanians found out, and they sent word to the Egyptians. Somehow they were not able to decode that message. They didn't understand in time. By the time our planes got there, within the first few hours of June 5th, we destroyed 452 enemy airplanes, most of them still on the ground, losing 19 of our own. That was Operation Mokade. Now Egypt had the most advanced ground-to-air missiles, and if they had advanced warning, likely would have been very different. General (coughs) Mati Hode said after this mission, in my wildest dreams, I never would have conceived of such an incredible success. I read Rabbi Emanuel Feldman has a, a little book. It's his diary of his experience during the Six Day War. He's the famous rabbi, founder of Beth Jacob in Atlanta. We quoted a story about him last week, but uh, he took a sabbatical, and he was in Israel. He's teaching in Bar-Ilan and doing other things. So during the Six-Day War, at the end of May, they're debating back and forth. Do we stay here? Do we go home? They had little children. They chose to stay. So he documents his experience. He writes as follows that on this day, Monday, June 5th, 28th of the ER, he had an encounter with a young man, Ephraim. Ephraim was learning in yeshiva in Panovich. And uh, Rabbi Feldman was curious, what's going on in the yeshiva? What's happening? So Ephraim says, everyone is down in the shelter and we're all learning down there. We're studying Torah. The yeshiva, and this is the great Panovich Arav, has placed us on a kind of 24-hour duty for the duration he wants at least 50 boys studying it every minute of day and night. He says, you know the Rosh Hashivo. He says, learning Torah, though, is the generator which will help our men in the field. And here you have such a, such a profound example of the relationship between Lom Dei Torah, between those who are devoting their lives to learning Torah, and those who are protecting Klal Yisrael. We're working together. We need each other. The famous analogy of the Chafetz Chaim is that if there's a a big fire in a village and you have all of these hoses that go back to some kind of water source and everyone grabs a hose and they start putting out the fire. So you need people who are there putting out the fire, but you also need people who are by the water source who are putting the water into the hoses. Otherwise, it's not going to work. The relationship that those who learn Torah have with those who are fighting for Klal Yisrael, we're fighting together, right? It's, it's a joint battle. On Cairo radio, even though their entire air force was wiped out, they would broadcast, and people would pick it up in Israel as well. You hear Nasser shouting, Soldiers of Israel, your homes are destroyed. Your women have been taken. Your children are captive." Tel Aviv is in flames, Haifa is burning, and Jerusalem is overrun. And he would say things like this, 40 million Arabs are coming to destroy and torture all of you, men, women, and children. And people living in Israel would hear this. Most would realize that he's lying. But the fear factor was great. But more than the fear factor, Nasser lied to his allies. He told King Hussein of Jordan, that we're doing wonderfully, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem are in flames, and uh, we're going to win this war together. Israel sends a, meshe- a message to Jordan, basically very simple, very clear, we will take no action on the Jordanian front if you don't attack us. We're not going to pursue you, we're not going to try to get back the Old City, even though we probably can. We'll call it quits right now. But King Hussein, who was misled by, by Nasser's lies, And, with the very deep hatred of Jews, couldn't contain himself, couldn't hold himself back. So they begin to shell the the Jewish neighborhoods of Jerusalem without mercy. And at that point, the IDF makes the decision to go in and take over the old city. So the Israeli army moves in against the Jordanian possessions in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, pushing them back east of the Jordan River, That's we get back Gaza, Hebron, Bethlehem and most importantly at that point We were able to get back the old city and the Koso, the wall The state of Israel is 19 years old at this point and we never had control over the Koso. For the last 1900 years, we did not have the Koso Defending ourselves against the onslaught of Syria, we were able to push them back and get back the Golan Heights some say, therefore, the land that we have is occupied land, occupied territory. And this is a statement that goes back a long time in the book of the Maccabees. This is not a new claim. The Greeks were telling Shimon that you have land that belongs to us. And Shimon writes back in a letter, number 16. The land that we now live in is the land of our fathers. Veinli, leish azar chilek ve'nahala This does not belong to a foreign per- people. Ki oveinu shodu nachlasenu ve'yachsuba. Our enemies have taken our land. However, ve'ata but now ki Liah Hashem misterkenu. Hashem has granted us success, so we've been able to get back nachlas avosenu, the land of our fathers. This is not someone else's land. This is our own land. Rabbi Feldman in his diary, he says that during the, uh, the evening, there is a radio broadcast from the wall. He writes, we hear the chief chaplain, this is Rabbi Gorin, he reads the memorial prayer for the fallen and the Kaddish is recited with all the excitement of getting back Yerushalayim, the Iratika, the, the, the old city and the, the Koso, it was a bloody melchama. More than 700 Israeli soldiers were killed and twice that amount were wounded. So Rabbi Gorin recites the Kelmole and he says, Kaddish, in the background is the sound of shooting. The soldiers chant the blessing of Shekhi Amr. He has kept us alive, who has sustained us and allowed us to attain this moment. It is a 2,000-year-old blessing. The sound of the shofar, Tekiyah, Shvar, and again and again. The soldiers at the wall fall into each other's arms and weep. The announcer on the radio weeps, and we weep together with all of Israel. That morning, Rabbi Shlomo Garin who was the chaplain of the IDF, at 4 a.m. he hears about the plan to take over the old city, so he goes to his father-in-law. His father-in-law was the Nazir, the, the famous Nazir, one of the, uh, the students of Rav Kook. And he tells his father-in-law what the plan is, and the Nazir begins to cry. And Shlomo Garan says, can I borrow your shofar? Right, you gotta blow a shofar in a time like this. I remember hearing from Rabbi Beryl Wine, at the time in 1967 he was a rabbi in Miami, So everyone's glued to the radio, and it's the Wednesday of the Six-Day War, June 5th, 28th of the year. And he's driving down one of the main streets in Miami, and at the time, you gotta keep in mind, Miami is probably 75, 80% Jewish. So everyone's driving slowly, in contrast to Florida nowadays. Everyone's driving slowly because they're glued to the radio. And when they hear the announcement, right, the famous words, the Temple Mount is in our hands. He says that every car just slowed down to a stop, and we just got out, and we started hugging each other. You had strangers embracing, just hugging each other and crying. Moshe Dayan, when he comes to the wall, so there are journalists there, They're documenting it and he takes out a piece of paper, he writes something and he places it into the crevice of the koso. And people are are very curious. Moshe Dayan was not a religious man by any stretch. So what did he say? So everyone walks away and obviously, as a good journalist, you take out the paper and you read it. What did Moshe Dayan write? He quoted one verse from Tehillim. Hashem This isn't from Hashem. It's a wonder in our eyes. Everyone in Eretz Israel, all Jews around the world, and, and if you haven't spoken to someone who either served in the Six Day War, who was living in Israel during the Six Day War, you have to speak to them. You've got, you got to hear it firsthand. Someone told me a story that he was in Tel Aviv the week after, and he said there were stores selling yarmulkes and sitzes, and there were lines out of the store, people lining up who never wore sitzes in their lives, because it was so clear, May Ace Hashem, azos, Everyone was Makir, everyone had the recognition. This is Min Shemayim. This is Minna One of my teachers in high school, his, his good buddy was in the war, he was one of the first soldiers in the Harabayas and the Koso, right there by the wall. And uh, he described that the soldiers took turns davening by the Koso. There were many who were religious in that particular group and there was gunfire in the background. You had to guard each other. There was a concern for Jordanian snipers, but they took turns davening. So my teacher told us that when his friend was davening, He's in the middle of Shmona Esrei, and he gets up to the line, of Let our eyes see you return us to Yerushalayim with compassion. He couldn't continue standing, his knees buckled, just overwhelmed by emotion. There's a pretty well-known book on the Six-Day War entitled Like Dreamers. Author is a fellow, Yossi Klein Halevi. He said that his father, who was a survivor of Auschwitz, his father lost his entire family, and uh, he was very cold towards Judaism. The only reason he stayed somewhat religious was because of his wife. His wife basically said before they got married, I don't care what you believe, but we need to have a firm household have to raise our kids with Kashrus and Shabbos and they're going to go to Yeshiva and that's it. That's what we're doing. But Yossi HaLevi he says I, I grew up in that house with my father and he did everything he was supposed to do but I knew I knew there was no lave, There was no heart. And I can't blame him. I can't judge someone who goes through torture like that. The only connection he really had with Judaism was so was it, the Was this, this relationship with the land of Israel. After the Six-Day War, Levy writes, that his father said, we have to go to Israel. How could we not? Right? We got to go to the Koso. So he, he says, we went to the Koso together and that was the first time in my life I saw my father really daven. He always davened. That's the first time I really saw him speaking to Hashem. And then he turned to me and he said, now I can forgive the Eubushter. Now I can forgive Hashem. <clears throat> That's what he said. The first time it was open to the public, the Kosel, was Shvuas of that year. Shvuas was the week later. This is from the Jerusalem Post, describing the, uh, the epic scene, 1st Shavuos, 1967. Every section of the population was represented. Kibbutz members and soldiers were rubbing shoulders with natura Carto. Mothers came with their children, old men trudged steeply up Mount Zion, supported by youngsters on either side, to see the wall. Some wept, but most faces were, were with smiles. For 13 continuous hours, a colorful variety of all people trudged along in perfect order patiently waiting when told to do so, at each of the barriers to make sure it was not overcrowded. In total, 200,000 people visited the Western Wall that day. It was the first pilgrimage in mass of Jews to Jewish-controlled Jerusalem on a Jewish festival in 2,000 years since the pilgrims of the festivals and temple times. An eyewitness testimony from someone who was there doing Shavuot. That first Shavuot says, I never known so electric an atmosphere before or since. Wherever we stopped, we began to dance. Holding Sifrei Torah, swaying and dancing, we sang at the tops of our voices. So many of the Psalms of Tehillim and the songs about Yerushalayim and Sion, the words reached into us in a new life. As the sky lightened, we reached the Tzion gate. Still singing and dancing, we poured into the narrow alleyways beyond. Yerushalayim hab'anuya ki'ir shachubra la yachtov. The miracles that occurred in the Six Day War that led to the, the getting back of Yerushalayim, we can't view as an isolated point in history. We have to view that as a little bit of a, of a kiss. Hashem gives us a neshika a kiss now and again, just to let us know if it's the time of Hanukkah, if it's the time of Purim. There are different tekufas, there are different periods where to use the analogy of shira shirim, Hashem is knocking on the door just to remind us, ladies, gentlemen, I'm here with you. Don't think nisim are a thing of the past. Don't think miracles only happen in biblical times. I'm here with you. Now you have Yerushalayim. Utilize it. Make sure it's lived in the Yira and the Shleimus. Rav Yaakov Naiman, in his Sefer, the Darchei in 1967, he wrote, Our generation has seen open miracles. In a way that earlier generations were never able to see. Even in previous times, we had people who were so righteous, and your, your average Jew was, was, was living an authentic Torah lifestyle. They were not able to see with their eyes, what our generation has seen. But he says, it's not just, that was awesome, that was great, that was an ace. It needs to be Nisha leinu Haroshem Latamid. This needs to become part of us forever. Kumis we could uplift ourselves through thinking about these miracles. Um and we hope Kikaderak Sha Khershparkulanu Nisim Besheshis Hayamim just like Hashem did, open miracles for Klal Yisrael during those six days. We can now have a more profound belief in the Amunah, in the, in the Geula Shalema. It's something that's reachable. The bracha we'll leave off with. Right? We spoke about Yerushalayim, what it represents, and the Nisim of the Six-Day War. The bracha will leave off at the very end of that same paragraph where David HaMelech speaks about his joy to go into Yerushalayim. He says, On behalf of my brothers and my friends, I will speak shalom to you. And on behalf of the house of God, Rad, I ask, please, what are these two things? Explains the Radak. On behalf of my brothers and friends, Amar Kol this is a prayer of everyone in Galus, Yisrael Mimcha. On behalf of all of the Jews who have been distant from you, Yerushalayim, Adabra Na Shalom Bach. I want to daven for them, She Leo that they're going to be able to live within you again, like the prophecy of Zechariah. I want to see those old men and women and the kids playing in the streets. That tefillah may not be fully answered, but it's clearly on its way. The second tefillah is one we still daven for every day. Laman beis Hashem Elokeinu explains the Radak. We daven for the beis hamikdash. We daven for the geula shleima, for the complete redemption, and through that we should see the city mechubra yachdav, brought together with shleimus, with ava, with Ahva, and a sense of relationship with the Kadosh Baruch Hu.